Evil 1-1, we have a visual on your position. We have enemy movement 300 meters to your south. Enemy troops in the open. Small arms and RPGs, you are clear to engage. Roger, Evil CP, we are TIC. I say again, we are troops in contact, requesting air support. Stand by for call for fire. Solid copy. Troops in contact. Be advised, air is red at this time. Repeat, air is a no-go. You're on your own. Dig in and give them hell. Give them hell. Give them hell. Welcome to the Dogs of War. Hosted by Stephen Houston. What is up? Friends and family, this episode of the podcast is, of course, brought to you by Joint Forces Canine. I'm going to let their ad play uh, after I finish this sponsor's... God, it's early in the morning. It's my birthday. My head's not here. So, uh, yeah, forgive me. But uh, once I finish this segment up, I'll play Joint Forces uh, commercial. Guys, check them out. It's a world-class facility. Awesome, dope uh, seminars coming through all the time. World-class trainers. So, podcast is also brought to you by Alpine Arms. Alpine Arms is a veteran-owned and operated gun store and training source located in the heart of Eagle, Colorado. They've also got a fully stocked retail shop. Check them out. All their instructors come from the special operations community and law enforcement special units. They can be found online at alpinearms.com or at 50 Chambers Ave in Eagle, Colorado. Forgive me, guys. I'm sitting downstairs. I just got back from a seminar, and I realized I didn't do, record the intro for... This podcast, so I'm sitting at my kitchen table going off a of memory here, but um, yeah, so uh, my guest, our, our guest today, I'm joined with Stephen Anamarchi again as my co-host. Our guest today is named Paul Curtis. Paul Curtis is a 19-year veteran of the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office. He was the only canine handler back in the day when it started, and uh, he was assigned to patrol and provided drug detection, tracking, and patrol canine services. I could go on and on and on about his uh, background. He was transferred to narcotics. He was assigned to FBI Drug Task Force, Knoxville Division, canine support for SWAT, and uh, I can I can admit it, his bio is so long. He supported multiple dog teams, and um, he was a United States Police Canine Association certified trainer for substance detection training and patrol services training. He's also an International Forensic Research Institute Certified Instructor for Drug Detection. Paul Curtis also owns Sniff Industries, where he builds his own manufactures and sells one-of-a-kind detection training for all types of detection purposes. The equipment was a pat- patented in 2014 and became available to canine industry in 2019. Curtis also provides training and consult- consulting services in a variety of canine applications in the law enforcement and private sectors. All right. Give it up for the great and powerful Paul Curtis. From basic to advanced training, Joint Forces Canine offers Arkansas's best dog training services. Whether you want to get your pet up to speed on basic obedience or are looking for more advanced training such as specific odor detection, personal protection, competition and trial prep, service dog training, and more, the professionals at Joint Forces Canine will help your dog become the best that it can be. Joint Forces Canine is veteran-owned and offers all levels of training for pets and working dogs on their 20-acre dog training facility. 
facility, which includes kennels, an indoor training arena, a pro shop, technical ponds, a trial field, and an agility course. Contact us today for more information and a free evaluation. You can also learn about our boarding, grooming, and working dog sales. Joint Forces Canine, www.jointforcescanine.com or call 479-802-0775. Jointforcescanine.com, 479-802-0775. How's it going tonight? Going well. That's awesome, man. Steve, what do you what uh, what did the last week have in store? Yeah, last week, what what had what did that have oh, in dude, store that, for you? I got punched in the face today by a crackhead, you know, at work. So that's always good. I can't uh, see a mark. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, I have a good chin, right? That's <laughs> that's what I'm gonna go with. Uh, is the beard the beard's covering it? That's right? what it, that's exactly what it is. The beard's covering. No, just you know, uh, disturbances at Walmart always turned into a shit show. So <laughs> it was one of those. Did but, your dog uh, bite him? Great. No, no, I didn't have the dog out at that time. Uh, although it would have been a real good one. Oh yeah, <laughs> it would have been a good one to have you, the dog on. You see that video? Of, I think it was an NYPD officer and same kind of deal, homeless guy, and they're like standing in front of the the squad, and uh, the guy just sucker punches the cop, and he like kind of like was taken back, and he looks <laughs> and he hits the door popper. <laughs> the fucking dog went out, and got his ass. Have you seen that video? Yeah, that's a couple yet. years old. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. It is. Yeah. It, he's like he was like, did you really just do that? Pop. Good, good example of bad decision making right there. Oh, absolutely. 100% instant regret. <laughs> All right, uh, Mr. Paul, how, how are you doing? Man, doing great. Loving life in Tennessee, staying busy and uh, just, you know, uh, plugging along, grinding along, doing, doing what we can for the industry and, uh, you know, fishing when I can. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, why don't you um, give a quick uh, broad stroke introduction of who you are, what you did and what you're doing? Okay. Oh, uh, well, you know, I was uh, pretty much retired now. I spent about 21, 22 years in law enforcement uh, in various roles from, you know, the ground up through top level uh, administration. Uh, most of my career in K-9 and in narcotics, uh, spent some time on a federal task force. You know, went from a handler to a trainer to a supervisor to to leading training groups to, you know, like many of us have in the industry, seen uh, seen a lot of the parts and pieces of this job, and uh, you know, been blessed with a great career and a lot of successes, and uh, you know, probably more important than the successes, but you know, relevant to what other people have done in this in this industry, and just. Uh, just been doing well. So now I've, I run my own company now, company uh, Sniff Industries, uh, where, you know, it's got two hats. It, uh, I do some training and consulting and then also manufacture a detection product that uh, that works for any type of detection out there. Uh, it's, it's called the court system. Uh, patented that back in 2014 and made it available to everybody else in 2019. And it's, it's starting to take off real well. And we were out there and uh, selling it all over the country. And actually we've gone international recently. And uh, so it's, uh, you know, we're doing that grind now. Awesome. Oh yeah. It's an awesome product too, man. You know that uh, the court system has been a big, big part of what we're using in our uh, training group here. And we got a training group. I swear every week it gets a little bit bigger we're getting to the point where we're thinking, about, all right, we're getting too many dogs in here. But uh, what's nice about that system, and, and Paul, I'm sure that you'll be able to talk more to this, is just how um, 
how you can use it for almost all disciplines, right? For, for detection. It's not just something that you can use for narcotics or explosive. Um, I, I don't know if you wanted to get into the, uh, the court system right now, we can do that and kind of get into it exactly what it is. What do you think, Steve? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. And then, uh, we'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll take the, the next question after that and we'll keep rolling. Um, yeah. So is that like a pseudo or a real odor or is it a containment system? What, what, what is the court system? Well, no, good. Excellent. You know, that's a, that's my, my uh, favorite rabbit hole to go down. So we'll, <laughs> we'll definitely do that. But uh, no, it's, it's a system. Uh, it's designed to, to hold uh, training aids and then, and then there's a mechanism for reward and there's, there's, uh, it's, it's a little more broad than your normal system. You get an opportunity to teach dogs what not to do or what not to respond to as well as what to respond to. And it, it does, it's got a couple of different variations. You know, the most common one, you, you hang a device on the fence and you got multiple devices, you know, a, a reward box and decoy boxes. And, and I remember, I was sorry to cut you off. I mean, I know, I, okay, I got it. I got it. I remember yeah, so Stephen telling me about this kind of. Okay. Yeah. Great. So, and then I've also got a, a version of that, that, uh, you can put on the ground and which works well in some of our other disciplines, uh, even in the, in the civilian sector, you know, those that are doing nose work competitions and things of that nature, bed bug and dogs, you know, it's easier for the beagles and, uh, oh. Even, you know, we've even played with uh, getting into sporting dogs, you know, getting into bird dogs, you know, being able to uh, differentiate, uh, you know, between the the actual game birds and other other types of birds that are not of interest, you know. So it it has a it's it's pretty diverse in its, de- in its detection abilities. But what makes it great is it, it it's a it's a foundational exercise that you can use start from a dog day one you know a puppy or an adult dog from day one in in detection work and and then put that nine-year-old dog that still needs those reps you know those foundation reps just like just like any other uh other discipline of work that you'll do you know i I make the analogy all the time you know it's it's kind of like if you look at a a professional football player baseball player you know they they still go back to to foundation uh and do those foundational exercises even though they're you know the best in the world at what they do Uh, because it simply cleans up their mechanics cleans up their their reliability and and just uh just a great program and a great exercise altogether oh that's awesome yeah, I remember him showing me, sending me links, the box with the glass in it that you hang on the fence, and um, I didn't really look too far into it, but uh, yeah, no, it's great, man, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but uh, just to kind of step back a little bit, um, why did why did you want to get into law enforcement, and, and, and when did you make that decision? Great question. Uh, you know, I did not grow up wanting to be in law enforcement, had no, no, uh, plan of that whatsoever. I was actually, uh, working in Oak Ridge, Tennessee and in, in the nuclear industry and, uh, and then attached to an engineering group and, uh, working in, uh, uh, radioactive materials and, and absolutely despised that job. <laughs> 
And even though it was a, it was a it was a well paying job, and you know it was good good great people, you know I got to work with some of the smartest people on the planet, you know MIT engineers and and scientists and just you know great people. But it wasn't the path, you know I could tell it wasn't my path. And and at that time, this is back in the mid nineties. Uh, at that time, I had a brother in law that was a sheriff's deputy, and and we were on vacation one year, and he says, Hey, won't you come out and ride with me? And we'll you can just check this out, you know, kind of what we do. And I'm like, well, sure, I'll do that, you know. So I ended up doing that a couple of times. And then, you know, got that proverbial bug that people get. And, you know, like, man, I love this. Uh, so this is this is pretty much what I want to do. This is my calling. So that's, that's the path I went. I spent about a year preparing myself uh, for that uh, financial uh, disaster. And then uh, – <laughs> you know, getting things ready and whatnot. And I, I took that dive. I, I quit my job there and I, I got hired at the local sheriff's office, you know, the next week and uh, took that 60% pay cut. And, you know, I've, I never, never dreaded it for a second. <laughs> Hell yeah. That is awesome. So Paul, um, you know, you started, you gave us the, the, the beginning of everything. So you, you've been doing this for a hundred years. Uh, I say that with love, of course, you probably got a million stories and we only have an hour right in this podcast. Give us some of your favorite stories, some of the, the best things in law enforcement that you've experienced that you can kind of sum up and, and give our audience a kind of idea of some of the things you've been involved with. Let me just add on and piggyback off of that. Give us, give us uh, so what he said, but like uh, specifically like one uh, funny rookie story, uh, maybe a, a scary story and then uh, you'll follow on to what Steven asks. Oh, well, you've, uh, you've put it on me right here. So. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the rookie stories, you know, everybody, uh, everybody does dumb stuff there cause you don't know. And then the old guys like to mess with you. So I'm, I'm trying to think of a good rookie story. I may have to come back to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I started, uh, in law enforcement in 97 and then, uh, God, really uh wanted to get into canine immediately we we had a canine officer uh who ultimately had to retire and, and uh, he got into a, a pretty tragic wreck that, that hurt him and his dog so and it was a it was a the the agency was a one team uh one canine team in, in the agency so ultimately i got to replace him but uh uh which was quite a trip um you know, I, I landed into a group of people that, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm still trying to, I'm buying time trying to come up with those stories you're asking me about. <laughs> so so uh, I was blessed and fortunate. I may kill another question here, but I was blessed and fortunate to uh, land into a group of people, you know, in the canine world that was, uh, you know, you just, it was happenstance. It wasn't something I saw. It wasn't something I researched, you know, but I landed in the lap of people that were, you know, just, the absolute best in the industry uh, wasn't anything that I did or, or anything else. It was just, you know, like I say, it was either a fortune or a blessing. And, uh, and that's how my canine career got started. But uh, as I try to tell those stories, I'm still trying to answer that first question. So uh, uh, one of my, one of my favorite, uh, favorite apprehensions I ever got. And I had a dog, my second dog, I, I handled the, uh, three dual purpose dogs in my career, a dual purpose, meaning they did patrol work and they did uh, detection and they were all drug detection dogs. And at the end of my career, I handled a bomb dog for a couple of years. But, uh, 
my second patrol dog uh, was a dog named Deacon. It was a Malinois, uh, a very ugly Malinois, to say the least. Uh, he was normal Malinois head, extremely large ears, a pencil, you know, a thin body, you know, very muscular, but very thin, and then kind of an ugly rope tail. Uh, in my handler's course, uh, he, he tore a retina as we were, we, we did a handler's course down in the glades in Miami. And, uh, we were tracking one morning and going through an okra field and, and he, he, he hit an okra stalk and tore, ended up tearing his retina, uh, in his eye, which ultimately made him go blind in one eye. Damn. So, uh, uh, but now this dog was a tremendous dog. I'm, I'm, I certainly can't go into everything that he's done over the course of his career. He's, he's long past now. He died in 2012, but, uh, he, uh, so for the first six months, if you, if you can picture it, you know, for the first six months when we were doing long apprehensions or, or recalls or whatever, you know, as he would go off into a run or as he would acquire a target, he would turn his head to about the three o'clock <laughs> so he could see out of his good eye. <laughs> As he's, as he's running to engage whatever it is he's engaging, you know. So, and, and he did that for about six months. Then eventually he adjusted to where he could, you know, just, you know, look normal like a normal dog. I don't know if he was embarrassed or what, but he, he you know, he kept that head straight forward and, and uh, was able to, to act more natural when we do those things. But tell you that story to say, you know, uh, we were, uh, I was working on one of the federal task force, uh, up in Knoxville and we had a bank robbery. This is 2007, 2008. Um, uh, we had, we had some guys rob a bank and then on top of that did a carjacking and they got away and just happenstance. We had an informant that knew the group. They gave us some information on it. And, uh, so we were able to track these guys down and we gather up all the different agencies and personnel that are involved and whatnot. And we, we jump in a large van and we've got some FedEx magnets that we put in the, put on the van to make it look like a FedEx van. And, <laughs> and sure enough, we roll up to the address and, and these guys are standing out front and they're standing out in front of this, you know, this POS Saturn that, uh, that they had just purchased from their neighbor for $800 with their newly found cash. <laughs> and uh so we had uh, you know the, this van is packed full of about 15 20 law enforcement personnel and i'm the i'm the canine handler for the group and our our uh, driver is also an officer and he pulls right up on top of this group of six or seven people and uh, and you can hear him right as we pull up to him and he puts it in park you know one of the guys says hey who ordered fedex you know <laughs> so i didn't know you could order fedex but but anyway that was, <laughs> So, so we all bail out, you know, the side door, back door, the whole nine yards. And I've got my cover guy with me who's been, you know, my mentor for most of my professional law enforcement career. And uh, we're coming around the van and, and I'm trying to target the, the main two characters that are in this group of, of bank robbers. And uh, so he's telling me, send the dog, send the dog. And I said, I can't send the dog. And he's, you got to send the dog. I, said, I can't send the dog. You don't have his good eye on him yet. You know? <laughs> and so... So just as, as you know, the, we're in a foot pursuit and uh, and we're going through this backyard. And then I, I, I recognize the dog has got the guy, you know, uh, acquired <laughs> like a low rent stud missile. And um, so I, I turned the dog loose uh, and just so happens the guy that I really wanted, the main character that we really wanted to apprehend, uh, he stumbles and his brother runs past him, who was also uh, participant but uh 
So, and then he gets back up and then, and then Deacon hits him. And then, then they do that train wreck roll for 15, 20 feet, you know, and then there's the apprehension just end up being a beautiful apprehension. And, and, uh, as a byproduct, you know, during questioning and whatnot, we roll him up to headquarters and roll him up to the SAC's conference room. And, but, but he's got, uh, a pretty good uh, war wound in his in his butt so they had to put him on a on a luggage cart to roll him up there and then uh, and then he he bleeds all over all over the conference room carpet and just just destroys the federal seal on the carpet you know as he's bleeding out as, as he's confessing to what he's done but uh, so that's one of my favorite apprehension stories even though there's i probably could have picked a, you know three or four hundred no paul that one that one's great um so <laughs> You know, as as uh, I'm a young trainer, um, I mostly work with pets, but I want to get more into the law enforcement world. Um, I, uh, I've got a suit and all my gear and stuff like that. But so I see all these videos posted on Facebook about, you know, car pursuits. So this is going to be a two part question, but I I always get a kick. So my buddy Jay Nix posted a video of this, like the most reckless pursuit I've ever seen in my life down in Florida. I mean, this dude was crashing through people's backyard fences, just blowing through backyards blind. I mean, just the most reckless, like 10 minutes. It's just like I was biting my nails and they finally pitted the car and uh, you see the officer start running on his body cam. And, dude, I, I don't know. I get emotional. Like, I well up when I see the dog blow by. And he's, get him, get him, get him, get him. Um, what, what, if you had to pick a, a, a best favorite moment ever from your entire career with working a dog that fits into that category that makes you proud, like, like, like you just feel it, you know, now you look back and it's like, man, that was awesome. First part. Second part, how, how do these dogs deal with like being in a pursuit and slamming on the brakes and doing 90 degree turns and jumping through ditches? Like, I, I know they're not like in a little plastic bubble. What, what are some challenges and, uh, you know, um, how do they deal with that? Okay. Good, good double question. Uh, don't let me forget the second part. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to spend some time on the first part. All right, let's do it. Uh, I, I had a I got a call one day. I'm I'm up at uh, in in the office where I work. You know, I worked on. I'll go ahead and say I worked on the FBI Drug Task Force for about ten years. Uh, and I'm sitting in the office one day. I'm I'm the canine guy on top of doing some investigations for him, but I'm the canine guy for the division. And uh, so we're sitting there, uh, me and my partner, not my my furry partner, but my other partner. And uh, we're hanging out in the office doing some work, and and our boss calls and says, "Hey, I need you to come up here to uh, such and such place, which is about you know sixty seventy miles away. We've had a bank robbery in another county, and the guy was you know was in that car pursuit, and there was uh, you know exchange of gunfire and this that and the other, and then the guy bailed out on foot, and he ran up the side of this mountain. They chased him for a little while, and then they stopped." They pulled in SWAT teams from everywhere. They had the helicopter up for two or three hours. And, and so they're looking for this guy that uh, the locals are, are uh, not fond of. They know who it is, uh, but they're not fond with, with uh, you know, engaging him. Uh, and he has somewhat of a tactical advantage. So they had a SWAT team scour the area for a couple of three hours, plus ran the bird up for a little while. So 
So they can't find him. So, you know, the first thing I do is I bitch at my supervisor and say, well, why am I getting this call three hours later? You know, I, mean, I didn't even, I didn't even know this was going on. You know, we, we were working on something else in a totally different part of the world. So he says, don't worry about that. Come on. So we drive up there and we get up there and we're, we're getting ready and, and, uh, we're getting ready to, to deploy and the, and the, and the commander says, hold on, we're going to wait on a bloodhound. I said, well, why are we waiting on a bloodhound? You know, and my, my, and my partner's going, what do you mean we're waiting on a bloodhound? He goes, we're waiting on a bloodhound. There's one coming from, you know, just down the road. Said, okay. We'll wait on a bloodhound. You're the boss, you know? So we automatically start, uh, uh, devising the tactical plan to deal with this thing and you know give give the bloodhound it's it's due or whatever we don't know the dog know the person and and then they you know, end up being you know good people and whatnot but uh not not the best uh, tactical situation i would have put myself in so we split the uh we split the swat team in half and uh we we go into a uh a counter assault mode. So first SWAT team goes with bloodhound. They've got the, they've got a sin item and the whole nine yards. And, and we, and then we, uh, we're second team with the other half of SWAT and we keeping them in, in, uh, in the line of sight, you know, basically 50 to 75 yards behind them. But, but, you know, staying, uh, somewhat back as that bloodhound starts to traverse its way up this side of this mountain. So, uh, we get about uh, probably five to ten minutes into this, and maybe ten percent up the mountain. And again, this is this is Deacon. This is that old ugly male I was telling you about. Uh, we're we're just kind of I'm not I'm not tracking him or anything like that. I've got him on his control collar, and we're just walking up the mountain with the team, you know, being vigilant and looking out. And and uh, and then he throws he throws his head up, and he takes a couple of whiffs, you know. And I say, oh, he's interested in something. So I don't, you know, I. I take note of it, but don't put much into it. And we go for another couple of minutes. He does that again and then starts getting a little antsy. So I signal to the rest of the team, hey, we, we're going to pay attention to a little something and still maintain our responsibility to that first team. So we skew just a little bit uh, from the first team, but still maintaining that responsibility. We go about another 100 yards. And at this point, Deacon is, is you know, that Malinois losing his mind. He has caught odor uh, of what we're looking for. And it's, uh, you know, if we're moving at 12 o'clock, the bloodhound is moving off at 2 o'clock and uh, kind of going going away. So I switch him up to his harness, and, and we start, uh, you know, we communicate to the other team, so, and we're switching our responsibilities and make sure everybody's on the same page and whatnot. We get to the top of this mountain, which is, you know, I say a mountain. In, the, in Tennessee, it's a hill. Uh, <laughs> in Colorado or wherever, it's, you know, it's a little knob. I live at 9,000 feet here. Yeah, so this is not even a hill to you. Uh, so, But but in Tennessee, it's, it's a hill. So um, we get to the top, you know, and I, I have the dog hold up because he's, he's really, you know, you can tell if you do so many of these, you can tell we're in pretty close proximity of our, of our individual. Uh, and so I have this young SWAT team member, you know, he comes forward and he, he blows past me as we're at the crest of this hill. He blows past me and he's got his binoculars and he goes up there like GI Joe. And he looks out those binoculars left and forward and right and down and up and all this other. And I, I, with some explicit explicitives say, you know, what are you doing, sir? And, uh, he says, I'm looking for the guy. And I said, well, you need to get your ass back down behind me. I said, cause we're right here on top of him. 
And uh, so sure enough, after we, you know, we've taken some cover and we're looking around and, and literally uh, if you go 20 feet out, it goes about 20 feet down. And I spot the guy laying under a log where he's been for a while. Hmm. So he's been, he's been hiding there from a chopper and, and, and all the SWAT teams and everything else. And so we, uh, we get her, you know, we make that communicate that silent communication amongst the team. Everybody gets in position. We make the announcements. I have the dog sound off and uh, ultimately the guy gives up. We take him into custody without incident and whatnot. So uh, from the time, and and so to recap the story, from the time we started or we actually deployed to the time we put him in custody, took us 27 minutes with that pointy-eared, one-eyed Malinois, <laughs> and, the blood, and the bloodhound was going off to, you know, some sort of farm festival or something. I'm not sure <laughs> what he was doing. But, uh, <laughs> so... Uh, so I get back off the hill and we, you know, done our business up there and I get back to the commander and I said, call you another bloodhound. I said, let me know how that works out. And he never did that to me again. So, <laughs> we had, but we, we've had it. We, we still, actually, I talked to him the other day. We have a great relationship. He's a tremendous individual. He was a great supervisor on the federal level. He was, a, you know, a former gunnery sergeant in the Marines. And, and I just, I love him to death, but I, I, I bust him pretty hard every chance I get. So. Do, you, do you know Tony Isom? Tony Isom. DEA. Did some not. stuff with the FBI. All right. Um, so uh, just the second, your second part of that question. Don't let me forget that. Yeah. Let me. So I, this has never happened before. My board is telling me I got five more minutes of recording left on this chip. So I'm going to pause the recording on the board and delete a couple podcasts and then we'll, uh, we'll pick back up. So. All right. Sorry about the uh, technical difficulty, listeners. Um, don't give a shit if you care, but uh, sorry. Um, Mr. Paul, you were going to lead into your uh, second part of that question about the difficulties of a canine being in the back during a pursuit, slamming on the brakes, doing donuts, pit maneuvers and all that. How, how do they cope with that? And what challenges do you see uh, from that side of the lens? Well, and every dog is different. So the challenges are different for every dog. You know, it's much like a person, uh, you know, some, you know, some people in a pursuit, you know, if they were in that passenger seat, they'd be losing their mind scared to death. And some people would be so amped up, you know, they would fight Godzilla, you know, so, so dogs are the same way, you know, depending, depending on how that dog is made and, and what his experiences have been, what's, what references the dog has, uh, in past experiences with those similar situations, all those play into what, to what, uh, how he's going to react to that. And then conversely, how you're going to, how you're going to train him to, uh, to deal with those situations and be in the, in the best uh, possible frame of mind for deployment for, for that handler. So, and, you know, normally we don't get into a whole lot of issues right there, but, uh, you know, cause most of the good dogs, you know, when they get into that situation, they know good times are coming as soon as that door opens. And, <laughs> and so, uh, they're, they're ready to go a lot. And a lot of that comes from, you know, from, uh, which Steve may, may went, may want to go down this road uh, later, but you know, the vessel that the, that the dog has to, uh, to use to employ his instincts, you know, all dogs got instincts. Some of them engage, engage them to one degree or another, but it, but what most people don't understand, it's, it's the vessel that contains those instincts. It's the most important thing. You know, it's the environmental soundness, it's the hardness and it's the irritability threshold. 
those are the most important pieces that most people overlook when they when they do dog selection. And so that that's really what impacts how you're going to how you're going to deal with those situations. But you know, most of the dogs that I've selected and and uh which has been hundreds and hundreds for police canine uh canine work, you know, they're they it just hits their go button. And then the, you know, we train on how do you, how do you manage that dog, that Dutchie or that Mal or that Shepherd that's on, you know, 140% go, you know, and, and, and do your work properly when you open that back door. Yeah. I, uh, not to cut you off, Steve, just to interject and then I'll hand it over to you. So I didn't, uh, so I, my buddy bred my dog and, um, kind of the females were already spoken for and there was a couple males and he kind of selected him for me, but I've noticed that he, he, if I put him in the car, he's in a crate now. Um, I just got a new Tahoe, so I've got a big rough land in the back. Um, but before that, I had a sports car, and we drove down to the uh, Georgia Police Canine Association's uh, seminar in in March. So my dog's not quite two, full Mal, KMPV lines. And, like, he literally laid down for probably 10 minutes on the two-day drive to Georgia. I mean, just window to window, smacking me in the face with his tail, slobber hitting the windows and stuff like that. And when I put him in the crate and we take off, he probably takes him a solid 20 to 30 minutes before he stops drive leaking and settles in whatever fashion. So that's definitely been a challenge for me. Um, you know, I don't know if that's how all these dogs are. He's my first Mal. My last dog was a German Shepherd working line, um, and he was completely different. But, uh, yeah, so that was my comment to that, and uh, I'm going to pass the torch over to Steve. Steve, too. Yeah, yeah. just to further on that, and Paul, I mean, feel free to chime in here. But uh, the seven, eight dogs that I've worked now, all vastly different when it comes to that. Some of them are completely quiet when they get back there. I, I wonder if they're sleeping half the time. Same amount of drive, same ability to, to work when they get out. And some of them are anxious, you know, mouth open, wanting to wanting to work. And and uh, you, you told, talked about like drive leaking. Yeah, it, it does waste a lot of energy. Right. So when you're there and you're, you're it's time to go to work, you may have a dog that's a little uh, more exhausted than the dog that would be resting. So, um, Paul, you want you want to further uh, comment further on that yeah and, and, yeah and, and, no, absolutely you're and sway what you're seeing is you're seeing uh you're seeing exhibited you're seeing signs of active aggression is what you're seeing you know that lust for combat and whatnot and that's what you're seeing and active aggression you know at times can be a beautiful thing can carry you over a hump you know because it it plays on the other instincts and primarily you know we use the prey more than we do anything but it can carry your prey to another level and get you you know get a dog to perform in a way that some other dogs aren't aren't going to perform now then everything you know anything in life anything that's great has a dark side you know it's it's, it's a double edged sword so to speak so uh while active aggression uh you know I like to see a little bit of active aggression in a dog but if it's a if it's a ton of active aggression it is an absolute headache it is a headache to deal with. You still have a great dog, but you have so much more to manage than you would when a dog doesn't display a lot of active aggression. 
And and that's just, you know, but but you have to understand what you have, you know. So you're seeing, you know, that dog is constantly, you know, bouncing those feet and, you know, though that rhythmic barking at times and whatnot, you know, though all those are displays of active aggression. And that's really in some dogs difficult to suppress. You'll never extinguish it because mm-hmm. it's an instant. Mm-hmm. But but it is difficult to suppress in, with some dogs, and and can become just you know you know more than it's worth in some dogs. I've I've got you know one dog that I sold and trained years and years ago that went to Alabama and came back to Tennessee. He's worked for two different agencies. Phenomenal dog, uh, fugitive squads uh, has just performed flawlessly, but has a level of active aggression you know that's probably not fitting for more than you know, a dozen people on in this United States to handle that dog, you know, simply he's not socially aggressive. He's not a nasty bone in his body. I mean, it's just a great dog. You know, his first handler, when he would come home, his five-year-old daughter would open the door of the truck before he even got it in park, let the dog out, jump on its back and ride it around the yard. You know, the dog was just a, just a phenomenal performing a dog, but had an off the chain amount of active aggression, which, at times makes him a headache so and a lot of that carrying on in the back of the car the crate or whatever you'll see that that's active regression a lot of times showing itself that anticipation of Mm. hey i'm I'm ready i'm ready to rock and roll let's let's do something well and and it partially is probably my fault because we live in a very small town and we don't have a fence around our backyard and we butt up to a golf course where there's a ton of clowns with off-leash dogs so mostly Anytime he's in the car, it's going to play, going to play ball, um, or going to do bite work. And, um, you know, when he goes outside, it's head up, tail up, like, like who wants it? You know what I mean? But at the same time, it's, he's got a touch of, uh, I don't want to call it fear, but obviously nerves. Like if, if somebody's like riding by in a golf cart, you know, 50 yards away, hackles up forward, you know, and you know, he's my first male and, and that's just one of the challenges that I have to deal with. And, and we got to drive two hours because we live in the mountains and the closest people to do bite work with are in Denver. It's a two hour drive. And Steve, you're right. I always worry because, um, before I had the rough land crate and, uh, you know, a little bit earlier on in our relationship, I had to put a wire crate in the back of my wife's car before I had my Tahoe. And he was standing up the whole time, like, <laughs> like breathing heavy spent, you know, and, um, you know, I, I, I personally haven't ran into a situation where he wasn't ready to perform. Like we went down to bite work in Denver, um, Sunday will be two weeks and, uh, he did four or five sessions and, you know, it wasn't an issue, but what could it have been, you know, if, if he hadn't been in that state of mind before that, is there any kind of techniques or advice or, you know, ways to kind of combat this to, uh, you know, make it a little bit easier from basic to advanced training. Joint forces canine offers Arkansas's best dog training services. Whether you want to get your pet up to speed on basic obedience or are looking for more advanced training, such as specific odor detection, personal protection, competition and trial prep, service dog training, and more, the professionals at Joint Forces Canine will help your dog become the best that it can be. Joint Forces Canine is veteran-owned and offers all levels of training for pets and working dogs on their 20-acre dog training facility, which includes kennels, an indoor training arena, a pro shop, technical ponds, a trial field, and an agility course. 
Contact us today for more information and a free evaluation. You can also learn about our boarding, grooming, and working dog sales. Joint Forces Canine, www.jointforcescanine.com or call 479-802-0775. Jointforcescanine.com, 479-802-0775. I thought he pitched that question to you. Man. Well, to both of y'all, it doesn't matter. Hey, either one of y'all oh, can okay, answer. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll start. I'll start it off, Paul, and you finish it. How about that? Okay, go ahead. So you know, so there, Paul alluded to it before that an instinct is not something you can completely extinguish, but we can suppress them, right? So there are things you can do to suppress active aggression. Now, right? we can so, do it in obedience. <clears throat> So I didn't mean to cut you off. There's a delay, but, um, so if I have his, if I put a, his collar on and I put it into bark collar mode, so it, 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 you know, that helps a lot, but sorry. Yeah. So there's an association, right? He, he understands what that piece of equipment means. And that means that if he gets actively aggressive in any way, he's barking or anything like that, there's going to be a, a negative association with that. So he's less likely to do that. That goes back to like operant conditioning. Um, but going back to the active, we try to elicit that, right? And then try to, at the same time, so basically you want to see the active aggression so that you can correct it and suppress it. So a great way to do that is with a decoy in front of the dog. You know, decoy zigzagging, moving back and forth. That dog, more, more than likely, a dog with high levels of active aggression is going to go berserk. And we're going to ask that dog to stay and to be quiet and we're going to challenge him and suppress that. And then when he's he's quiet for a long period of time and he shows clarity, then we'll allow him that reward of biting. Do you want to take that further, Paul? No, I mean that's a good technique for suppression and and you're, you know, you're you're doing a balanced approach to hey, do this, uh, you know, you know, you're going to admonish this side of it and reward the other side of it, you know, and, and, and obviously, uh, in most, in most situations, balance training is, is the way to go. Uh, but it, like I say, you know, when I was saying before, active aggression is a very difficult instinct to deal with. Uh, you, you do exactly what Steve's saying. You use it to your advantage. Uh, and then, but you know, on the flip side, when you've got one going nuts in the car, you know, it's it's certainly a disadvantage because, like you you've already alluded to, Sway. You know, you've got and uh, you know Pete, something I've harped on for years and years and years, and all the conferences and classes and training that I've done. You know, you manage your the way you manage your dog is very important because he's only got so much gas in the tank, or I guess nowadays he's only got so much energy in his lithium battery. <laughs> uh, uh, so. So, uh, you know, but you only got so much energy there. So you want to manage it to where when it comes, you know, when it comes game time, you've got the most amount of energy in that dog that, that you can that you can use for whatever your deployment is. So, you know, going down the road, you know, you want to cut down on the stimulus. Uh, like you say, using the, you know, if, if it's actual barking, you know, use that bark collar. If there's not another specific mode to work, but use that bark collar. So at least he's not exerting that energy, uh, you know, barking, uh, those can have disadvantages. And, you know, I've seen bark collars, you know, where you have a full, a full, um, um, kennel in the back of a car or an SUV and whatnot. And when that bark collar rubs against a, rubs against the the kennel it sounds off it takes it as a bark and sounds off so then you create another another negative issue going on there so 
active aggression, tough to deal with. It's very specific. You have to have a game and, and for every individual dog and for that level of active aggression and then, and then, you know, proceed accordingly. But like with anything in training, you know, just remember, you know, you so you may solve one problem, but you also may create another one from solving that problem. So, yeah. so Paul, uh, real quick, I know we spend a lot of time on active progression. I think we need to move on. But before we do, why do you believe so many trainers and um, handlers and people selecting dogs? Why do you think so many people see active aggression and think it's such a great thing? And a dog that has a tremendous amount of active aggression, for whatever reason, to them is something they believe they want in a dog. Well, you see, you know, in a, in a, at a glance, you know, that, that first uh, snapshot, you know, hey, this is nice. You know, this dog will carry on. This dog will do all this. Uh, and on its face, it's like, ooh, oh, yeah, this looks great. Uh, but you really need to you really need to dissect uh the the volume of active aggression or the depth of that dog's active aggression and the triggers and and that that needs to you know when you're selecting a dog i i like a little bit like i say i like a bit of uh, active aggression you know if you put it on a on a scale of one to ten you know i like a six you know or a seven sometimes but uh a lot of that, you know, if people people aren't prepared to deal with that, because when a dog is in active aggression, and this may, you know, this may be hard to, for people to grasp, but, you know, dogs don't like to listen. So they hear very well, but uh, they don't like to listen. Well, when they're, when they're, when they're in, engaged in active aggression, that, that will to listen goes down, you know, exponentially even further. So... That creates that headache that we're talking about. That's kind of the core to that is well, now I'm no longer listening because I'm in this lust for combat. And so, right. you know. Well, so <clears throat> I had uh, a trainer, not going to mention names, but that uh, basically came in, back my dog and smacked him upside his head with a, a metal food bowl because he was barking and doing stuff like that. And the other day, he was out on his place bed and I reached underneath of it and I grabbed a metal food bowl. Cause I have two bowls. I use one for water and then one for his, uh, there you go. Steve, I got you now one for his bone broth. And then I mix his supplements and stuff in there. And like he, when I pulled that bowl up, he was like, and out of there. And, uh, I didn't understand that technique, you know, but, uh, yeah, Steve and I have kind of, kind of touched on that, but, um, you know, uh, my dog's young. He's not even two years old yet. He's he's out of um, who's he out of? Boar. He's a Boris dog, uh, Boris Getz or Goetz, however you say it. And he's still very immature mentally. He, he he's not. He's still very puppy like. So, what what's your take on working a dog who's still not mentally mature um, in in defense or you know? putting pressure on the dog because up until this point, everything has been prey based until that moment that I just mentioned. Well, it goes back to that vessel that, that I was talking about and didn't spend a lot of time on, but you know, 90% of what we want to do is in prey regardless. You know, it's, uh, we don't use a lot of defense. You can get into combat in the middle, in the middle of bite work, you know, and you can, you can push that combat and that defense a little bit. But where I would rather a dog go into just more intense prey than 
and then revert into defense because I know you do some decoy work and whatnot, and you know, and decoys can feel when a dog is in prey, when a dog is in defense, you know, because defense goes to hunting, goes to pulling away, the grip lightens up, you know, all that, you know, for for police canines, defense is is more often than not is useless for us, you know. If, if I got a dog, you know, if I got a dog that's in prey and engaging a subject, you know, and he's having to fight, I want him to up his prey is what I want him to do. I'm not necessarily looking for the defense. I want him to up his prey. I want him to push in harder. That's no different than that line hitting that wildebeest, and that wildebeest is fighting his ass off. You know, that line's not going into defense. He's upping his prey. You know, he's, oh, I got to kill you faster, harder, sooner. You know, and the purpose for for – criminal apprehension with canine is to use pain compliance and use that that advantage of hey i got to get this guy under control so i can stop this fight you know because i want to stop this fight as quickly as possible so something else stupid doesn't happen so i don't get hurt the dog doesn't get hurt the bad guy doesn't get hurt and and we end this you know in the best way possible for everybody so I, I don't put a lot of effort into defense other than I, I, I'll play with it and tickle it a little bit, but I really want my dog to up his prey, you know, when he's challenged, you know, because I, I see bad things happening. They go into defense. Uh, you get dogs that bite in defense. They bite multiple times all over the place. It's shallow. It's short. It doesn't control anybody. Uh, at the end of the day, when the guy's, defense attorney looks at his bites and he says, well, you got nine bites all over you. They mauled you. And now you're, you're getting a lawsuit. You know, I worked, I worked two day, you know, two large canine units for many, many years. You know, I got sued one time and won it, uh, over 17, 18 years, you know, simply because of the, you know, being legally sound is, is very important in what you're doing on top of, of the morality and all the other stuff you're doing. So, uh, but Paul, how many know, de- defense is not a place I go. So, go um, just to Paul, how many apprehensions do you think you have had amongst yourself and your teams that you've supervised over, over that time? Well, as a handler, I do you know, physical apprehensions as a handler. I had you know, 60 plus, you know, maybe 70 over a course of handling a, a dual, a patrol dog for, you know, 15 years, 14 years. Uh, but that was, you know, staying under that, uh, you know, and luckily I, I've never worked in a, just a really vicious type area, you know, so I've always been, you know, in that, that physical apprehension to actual apprehension ratio, you know, has always been below 20% and whatnot. But, you know, you take the handlers that I've trained or been in my training groups or been under my direct supervision, you know, there's been hundreds you know when i was in uh, knox county you know i managed an 18 dog unit you know that had you know four dogs on the street you know every hour so you know there there's hundreds of hundreds of apprehensions there Uh, so to to piggyback off of your comment about the defensive dog i was at a seminar one time not going to name the place or the you know the what but there was a very nervy defensive pit bull that was doing bite work at the seminar for people who were learning how to do bite work as the decoy. And this dog probably shouldn't have been off a back tie because it, it would, it would transfer. It was nervy. We were doing a call off 
demonstration, like send the dog bite, call it off. It comes back and bites the decoy over here. I was the decoy on this side, right? I'm wearing a chomp. Dog has a prong collar on. Prong collars rotated, rotated around to the front with a tab. Dog gets on the bite. He's on a long line. Decoy reaches under, grabs the, the tab so that when the handler says the dog's name and to release, if the dog doesn't release, you give it some correction. Then it goes back. There's a decoy that runs up behind the handler, pops a whip, gets the dog to bite on that. Dog comes and bites me. When I reach under and grab the leash, it spits the sleeve out. I still have the leash in my hand, but I was like, ah, that, that, and I got it to, to, to re-engage. And then the handler says the dog's name, says the out command. He spits the sleeve out, turns around and runs back to the other decoy, who was a young kid, super young, super green, bites the sleeve, but the dog was hip to it. As soon as the kid reached under to grab that other, that, that prong collar with a tab on it, fucking nuked him in the wrist, man, laid it open to the bone. So I, I definitely agree with you on, um, I would rather have a prey dog than a defensive dog. Um, but can you kind of just for the listener who might not be, you know, as hip as you guys are and, and, and me slowly getting to the hip level, but, uh, why, why the, the, the prey driven dog and, and police work is better than the, uh, defensive dog other than the transferring part that you already mentioned. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, I like to hear your expertise. Oh, that's for me, huh? No, it's for both of us, but I don't <laughs> well, want to hear you. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll start it like I like we did before. I'll start it and you finish it. Uh, 100%, um, I agree with what Paul was saying before. There's not a lot of application for defensive dogs in police work. Um, the very few times I can say it's nice to have a little defense is for handler protection. Other than that, I don't really need a dog to be thinking in that in that state of mind. It's not doing me a lot of service as a police officer. You know, for sport work and Schutzen and stuff like that, they they don't mind it. Um, for some sport dogs, it's actually something they don't don't want, but it just depends. But specifically for police work, of course, I want that dog to be prey driven, and I want that bite to continue to be pushed forward. I would, you know, four holes are definitely better than sixteen holes in a, in a person that that dog has bit. So uh, the best bites in the world are the ones where it's just those punctures that that dog can be on there for the appropriate amount of time. The out is nice and clean and where the dog went in is exactly where the dog went out. Uh, those are the ones that uh, we're most proud of in police work. Would you agree with that, Paul? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Those are, those are fundamentally correct. Uh, they're legally sound, you know, which becomes, uh, actually is becoming to the forefront, you know, nowadays, uh, yeah. as, as we, uh, are conservators of, of our industry, uh, you know, you, you've got to be where you're getting an apprehension and that you're doing your business uh, cleanly. You're executing that. Your dog is executing it and you're ending your business as absolutely uh, as morally responsible as you can. That, that's the world we live in today. It should always be that way. But that's certainly, uh, you know, has been gaslit over the last few years of. Uh, that's why you've got to be in prey. You've got to have a dog that goes in and bites full, bites hard, ends the conflict. You get the person in custody, dog out's clean, end of story. That, that's never been more important than it is today. Uh, and these young handlers and these young people, uh, you know, need, need to be very aware of that, need to be able to, to accomplish that. Uh, 
Now, what happens is sometimes people get into these knee jerk situations where, okay, I got a dog that bites. Now I got to get him to out, you know, you know, on a whisper. So they go and they train the out, which is kind of part of what your story is with your little pit bull there is, Hey, I got to do this out. Got to do this out. Got to do this out. Well, what happens is when you concentrate on the out, uh, you corrupt the bite itself. Uh, and, and most decoys will, will realize this pretty quick, but, uh, so what you have to do is you have to develop the the communications because I I've seen it happen and actually early in my training career I was I was I did it many times uh, foolishly uh, because I didn't know or ignorantly maybe not foolishly but ignorantly, uh, ignorantly. <laughs> uh, so so uh, what happens is, is is people start working that out and they create a conflict in their bite work with their dog because they don't communicate they don't communicate it properly and the dog thinks they're being corrected for biting rather than for not outing. Mm. And that, and that is the, the nuance that is critical. And Hey, I've got to, you know, my clean bite work has to be communicated properly. And, and you'll see a lot of people do that in a manner. And, and I've seen a lot of dogs go there. Well, I'm, be, I'm being corrected for biting. Well, no, you're, you're being corrected for not outing. And you have to be able to distinguish between the two. That's very, very important. So, from from my personal experience uh, with my with my current dog, right? So, we taught him an out. He was back tied. He was on a chomp. He had a prong collar rotated around to the front. Decoy dog bites. Decoy grabs the tab. Uh, gives me a signal once the dog bites. Counters a few times. Works out the demons and. Uh, Gives you the head nod, and I would say, "Los," and uh, guy would pop, pop, pop the prong collar. As soon as the dog spit it out, boom, reengage. Took two reps of that, two reps with the prong collar correction. The third time, and ever since then, when I say "los," my dog spits it out. Could you uh, expound on uh, your methodology of teaching it out, and uh, then I'll pass it back to Stephen, and then we'll start uh, winding down. No, that, that's one technique. That's a very, you know, that's a common technique, a back tide, you know, you're doing, you're doing that exercise just like you're talking about. And, and it's very, it's commonly used, you know, in, in the industry, but, and that is fine as long as the dog makes the proper association to that type of timing and that type of correction and whatnot, which most dogs do. Not all of them do, but most dogs do, but that that's certainly a, a uh, a technique or or the mechanics of of doing that and uh and works fine for most dogs so for the other dogs that it doesn't work for what what uh kind of in your experience maybe outline another one or two different methods for that that uh you would employ so uh then i'm coming off that back tie i'm coming in open range work and i'm basically doing something very similar what I'm doing is, is I'm putting I'm putting the uh, a helper uh, behind the decoy because uh, I want to correct the I want to correct always correct the dog into the decoy I want to correct the dog into the bite work I don't want to I don't never want to to have the correction cause the dog to physically disengage the decoy I need the dog to make the decision to disengage the decoy so I don't want him leaving that space I want him staying right there. 
Well, I have the helper on the back side of the decoy, which is, is another very common exercise that you've probably done or seen. Uh, and then the other thing I do is before I do any type of out, especially if I'm working on this, that means there's an issue. So the bites are extended. The bites are very, very, very long. And before I even get into this part, I'm going back to, I'm you know, if I'm having an issue, I'm going back to sleeve work and I'm doing sleeve work and I'm doing long extended bites and then I'm doing sleeve carries and then I'm out and off the sleeve, you know. And you, like I say, no matter how old the dog is, where you are, if there's an issue in whatever training you're doing, it doesn't matter, tracking, bite work, detection, it doesn't matter. Go back to foundation. Foundation is always a place you can go back. You know, it should never be a shameful thing to do to go back to foundation, but go back to foundation and then back up and then, you know, start from step one or step two, wherever it is you need to go to. And when that's reliable, then again, move forward. So, but talking about specific techniques, I go back into that helper behind the decoy, open range bite, long bite after, you know, if, unless I had to do some of those other exercises, but I still do a long bite. And then I slow down that command and that, and that correction. And I slow it down to like, you know, where you were doing it at, at speed of 10, I slow it down to a speed of six or a speed mm. of five. And I make it nice common tones very uh, uh, distinct physical actions pronounced vocals but not no emotion no yeah. no exaggerations no nothing we're just doing business fluffy's engaging my guy i tell fluffy to let go and then and then we deal with you know we respond remember dogs learn through association they learn, they know, they remember agreeable and disagreeable situations. The agreeable ones, they want to go back to. Disagreeable, they don't want to go back to. And when you communicate it properly, you know, and, and these are just techniques. These are, you know, this is the first one that comes to mind. There's, there's others, but, you know, there's there's multiple. And, and there's decoys that are far better than I am, you know, any any day of the week. But, but there's multiple techniques that you can use to address the situation, depending on your dog's history, what it knows, what it's referenced, what it's seen, what it doesn't know. And you, you just have to, you just have to go there and, and, and find what works for that dog. You know, I've, I've trained, you know, in training groups where I have eight or 10 or 12 dogs or whatever, you know, we're all trying to get from point A to point B, but not all of them will take the same path from point A to point B. Amen. And, and I always, one of my mottos and w <clears throat> what I've learned is, uh, you got to train the dog that's in front of you, right? There's no, there, there's no cookie cutter answer for that. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, Steve, but I, I'm just going to ask one more question. Um, do you know, um, Tom Kaywood or Jeff Ross dog trainers, uh, in Saudi, Tennessee, Saudi Daisy, Paul. No, uh, doesn't come to mind. No. Okay. No worries. No worries. All right, Mr. Steven and Tamarchi. What's what you got, brother? <laughs> uh, just to, just to further what Paul is saying, and everyone's got different techniques. For me, it's more important about where that dog is in its maturity. Where is it? it where is he in, in in the development phase? Right. Too early are we asking for a dog to out when he can't do other things well? You know, I want to make sure the dog understands how to bite well before I ask him to out. I also, want a relationship with that handler before we even start 
doing any outing drills. Right. Because part, part of what makes outing a little easier, in my opinion, sometimes is when the relationship has been developed oh, yeah. correctly with that handler and that dog. Because it's conflict, so basically. Yeah, for, for sure. And 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 when a handler has been been developing pack instinct with that dog correctly, and he asks that dog to out and it doesn't, and a correction is applied correctly, you're more likely to get the the response that you want from that dog. Not only because the correction has been laid, but because of the relationship that's there, right? There are certain rules and the communication is part of that. You know, out means out, bite means bite, sit means sit, and so on and so forth. Um, so that that's kind of my answer to that. I, I really like um, the idea of outing off a toy means that's step one, right? You got to out off your toy before you can be expected to out off a man. If the dog can't out off a toy Mm-mm. and someone's coming to me with an out problem, I usually start there before I say, okay, let's put a decoy out there and let's, let's fix this problem. I usually start with the basics. All right. How are you playing with your dog? Are, are is the dog in opposition reflex? Are you correcting the dog at the same time you're asking it to out, which I'm sure Paul, you've seen a million times. <laughs> right? So that causes a lot of problems back to what you were saying. Uh, the dog believes that it's being uh, asked to out for the bite and so on, so many miscommunications there. Well, that, that, that's my answer to that. But I have a, I have a question for Paul that I have to get to, of course. Amen. This is the one I've been sitting on all day. So Paul, you and you and I have uh, been blessed with some of the same mentors and I've, I've talked about it extensively here on this podcast about the, what Tony Guzman and Bob Suarez have meant in my career. And I can add you right to that list. Uh, Tell, tell our listeners, what, why is it so important? What, what does it mean to you um, to have those mentors? And when they ha- what have they done for your career? Well, they, they were the foundation of my career, you know, and, and I, I use the word foundation and you, and you put that in perspective, you know, it's, it's, you know, everything, you know, from profession, you know, a profession to a home to however you want to place it, you know, is, is foundation is, is everything. And, and, and I said early on, you know, I was blessed to fall into, uh, this group of people, you know, and, and, and Tony Guzman, you know, I've, I've been, uh, working with Tony for a gazillion years since I've been in the industry and, uh, with, with many, many dogs and, and that, that handler, you know, my mentor, uh, you know, it was Bob Suarez. That's the guy that uh, when they when they told me in 2001, hey, you're going to get a dog. You need to go train with this guy over here. And here's his phone number. And I, I call up and I get what in the hell am I talking to? And it's, it's this little uh, New Yorker Cuban guy, you know, that barely speaks English, even though he tries real hard. But uh, he's, uh, you know, he says, hey, do this, do this, do this, you know. And so, you know. I follow I've and I I love him and respect him and we we didn't only work in the canine world for many many years but we we worked in law enforcement uh in a totality for many years both on a federal task force together for 10 years and and uh th- this guy is is a uh you know what he's done for law enforcement will be will never be recognized in the manner it should uh, in the totality. He is just in canine a steward for the industry, probably one of the most knowledgeable people in in canine period in the country. Uh, and then you can even take that further into animal behavior and and just. You know, go. You can go so many directions. The, the guy is, is a genius in so many ways. He's an acquired taste. <laughs> uh, I'll put sure, I'll, yeah. I'll put that one out there. But 
when you take a guy that's as genuine as he is, uh, no matter what flaws he has, you know, I'll, I'll take him every day, eight days a week, uh, without fail. But this guy taught me, you know, right out of the gate, you know, I learned, I learned all my initial principles and, 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 and a lot of things from him, you know, probably 80%, 75%, 80% of what I have as a, as a handler and a trainer throughout the years I got from him, you know, him and Tony. And then, and then the rest of it I got from the soup, you know, which was my own experience, you know, going to conferences and, and training a gazillion dogs myself and, you know, working with other handlers and other trainers and decoys and whatnot. So you know, I get 75% from them and, and, and 25% from the soup, you know, and, uh, and I've been blessed to, to be right there, but yeah, you know, that, that's, uh, I've, I see, I've seen so many other handlers and so many other trainers, you know, come from other places and we've helped them from uh, all over the country, you know, or they, they weren't fortunate or they weren't blessed enough to land into those circumstances that I landed in. Mm. So you have to say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to step up and I'm going to help you. You know, you, you really need to, you need to be that, that guy that's doing something for the industry uh, rather than, you know, the industry's doing for you. Uh, and I, and I, and I encourage the young handlers, you know, uh, young handlers, medium handlers, old handlers, whatever, you know, find, find you a person, you know, that, that does things good. Or if you, if you're able, does things great, you know, and is, is doing, you know, is genuine and doing things for the right reasons and, and find that and then latch on to it. Uh, I see a lot of people, you know, that are, that are ambiguous about what they're doing in this, this line of work. And they're, they're jumping from person to person to person to person. And, and generally you go backwards when you do that. And they'll say, well, I'm getting, you know, a taste of this, 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 and this. But on the flip side of that, that person that you're going to see, that trainer or that decoy, you know, he's getting a snapshot of where you and your dog are. Uh, and he's reading what he sees right there in front of him. But he really has, you know, unless you have extensive conversation and some extensive training time, he has nowhere, he has no way of knowing where you are in your evolution of training. You know, what some of the references are that, you know, you may have had two, three, four weeks ago or whatever. <clears throat> and and that plays into what's going on. You know, you may have fixed a problem three weeks ago that never comes up in conversation. And now he's seeing some result of that action or that response. And he's saying, oh, well, you got this problem, you know. And he's not wrong because that's what he's seeing. But it's counterintuitive or counterproductive to where that particular canine team is in, in their progression as a team. So, you know, those people find you a good group, find you a good person, whatever they're out there. You know, there, there's, there's some great canine trainers in in this country. There are some, you know, and and I, I believe, you know, I I don't have any problem saying this, you know, I think 10% of the guys out there are great. Another 10% are really good and 80% of them are crap, you know, and that's really where it's at. And, and so find you, you know, get some, find somebody in that 20% and go to work and do good things, you know, and then become, you know, part of that 20%. I've always said, I've never kept secrets. I never kept, you know, anything coveted or, you know, my goal has always been as a trainer, I want to train the guy, as a handler, I want him, I want him to be better than me. You know, I've, I've got more satisfaction out of seeing people go do things 
and have successes. I've got more satisfactions out of people I've trained out of their successes than I ever got out of mine, you know? So ultimately your, your goal should be, you know, have that guy you trained to be better than you were. And, And if you do that, then you, you've done you've done everybody a solid. You've done the industry a solid, which is what you ought to be doing. Amen. I uh, I couldn't agree more. Especially coming from a military background, you know, I've I've had I've had leaders on uh, on both sides of that, and the ones that I respected the most, and I still remember to this day, are the ones that were selfless mm-hmm. and gave you their time, their energy to make you better, and uh, didn't hold that against you, but. Um, in closing here, Mr. Paul, um, why don't you give everybody your uh, social media, where they can find you, find your business, any any uh, closing remarks on that? No, I, I appreciate your time, uh, Sway. It was, it was great to meet you tonight, and I've, I've enjoyed spending time with you. Uh, Steve, I've known for a long time. I've got to abuse him in, in days past, and, and I always love seeing his face and uh, carrying on with him, but uh yeah, no, we've got uh, uh, some great detection equipment for you and, and uh, uh, a good product that we'll be out promoting uh, pretty hard over the next couple of years. But uh, our website's caninesniff.com. Uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Sniff Industries. Uh, you know, we're, we're just we're doing good things. We're excited about, uh, you know, moving on to a different chapter in, in this, uh, in this career and in this industry and, uh, looking forward to it and having fun. And, and I've, I've really enjoyed, uh, having the conversation tonight. So awesome. Oh, absolutely. The pleasure's, uh, ours, man. And, uh, you know, just in a couple of weeks, we're going to be at the canine, uh, what is it? The canine police canine conference or the canine cop magazine conference. Canine cop it. magazine. Yeah. In, uh, in yeah, Nashville. Yeah. And uh, Paul will be assisting me with the class I'm teaching there. So I'm excited to have him here. And we're going to have those, uh, the, the court system on display. Uh, our, our, our whole training team, at least 80% of us, will be there traveling from Texas to Tennessee. Um, I think what we're doing is, is, is really good work, and we want to share that. We want to be good stewards uh, to, to all the industry. And, uh, you know, to, I hope that... Uh, you know, being one of the guys that you you have had underneath you, that you see those exact things that you are trying to instill in your trainers and your handlers and what we're doing here. Because you don't know a lot of the guys, Paul, but they I mean, it goes down from from trainer to trainer. They have a lot to, to be thankful for because of the time you put into me and I'm putting into these guys. So it's it's a pretty special thing. It's and when I sway was like, hey, man, do you have anybody you want on the show? I was like, yeah, absolutely. I, there's a handful <laughs> I had to have I had to have you on first uh, because uh, because all the things I just said. So, uh, Paul, specifically, thank you for what you've done for me in my career. And thanks for what you're doing for the industry, man. Yeah, you're very well. Thank you. You've uh, you've been uh, more than worth it. And I'm, I'm proud, uh, proud of you and proud to see what you've done. And, and to piggyback off of that, um, this year's kind of a little bit full for me. And I've got some seminars and some commitments that I have to keep. But uh, next year, I hope to maybe go on the road with Steve when he goes and does these things and uh, come down to Texas. And um, I look forward to, to meeting you, Paul. And uh, the main sponsor of this podcast is um, Rob Shoemake from Joint Forces Canine out of Siloam Springs, Arkansas. Um, he hosts some pretty high-level uh, seminars constantly throughout the year. I will be there next month for Justin Rigney's power biting seminar. And then in November, I'm going to a five day detection summit with Cameron Ford, Simon Prenz 
and Pat Nolan. So if I can plug you in with Rob, let me know. Shoot Stephen a message. He can give you my contact info. And uh, if you ever want to do any seminars out there, I'm sure he would be more than honored. Absolutely. No, yeah, absolutely. Look forward to it. Awesome. I, pre- I appreciate your time, guys. Thank you for the invitation. I've, I've, enjoy- I've enjoyed it tonight. Yes, sir. Guys, thank you. Stephen, we'll be in touch. And uh, Paul, we'll be in touch. You guys have a good night. Stay safe. Watch your six. And uh, thank you for your time. All right. Thank you, Sounds good. All right. See y'all. Thank you for tuning in to the Dogs of War. 